The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. I'd like to invite you to uh, find in your Bible Acts chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 21 today and actually be finishing out chapter 19. This uh, last little um, story that uh, comes from chapter 19 is something that has happened to Paul. As you're finding your way in your Bible, I want to tell you a short story that I believe will kind of uh, resonate with what we're going to see in what happens today in Scripture. So a few months ago, I want to say it was prior to Thanksgiving. Yeah, it was uh, maybe uh, around September. And everything's going on differently in the culture right now. There's a lot of quarantine. There's a lot of social distance. There's all kind of precautions that are taking place. And so we wanted to visit with my parents at their home, and they were kind of reluctant, you know, because my dad is going to be 80 years old in April, and he's in great health. Um, you know, the, what I think is the health of a man 20 years younger than he is. He's, he's, he does a lot of exercise. He, he's very healthy, even to be almost 80 years old. And, uh, but they're still, you know, a little bit older, so cautious, which is understandable. So what we thought, well, we'll just meet on the, on the back porch and sit around outside, you know, we won't be in the house, it'll be nice. So um, my family, we all went over to their home and we walk around the back and we're sitting back on the back porch there around the table and we eat lunch and uh, talk and just just uh, relax. And we were probably out there two hours sitting around the table and... uh, my dad got up to carry some dishes, some things back into the house and set it in the kitchen. And I got up, his hands were full, so I got up to open the door for him. And so he's standing at the door, I'm walking to the door to open it, and about that time, behind me, where the table was, where everybody else was sitting, all these screams let out. And, and it caught me off guard. So I was turned this way, and I heard a scream, and I, as I turned, everybody just scattered like roaches when the lights turn on. They just, and they're all running out in the yard. And I didn't know what was going on. I could not see or detect anything that would be wrong, but yet everybody is screaming and running. So I took off running. I didn't, I didn't know what I was running from. I just knew everybody else was running, so I'm going to run too. And uh, we get out in the yard and look back, and my youngest daughter, Sarah, is standing up on top of a chair like this, just, somebody come get me! And I was like, from what? What's the matter? I, I still hadn't figured out what was wrong. All I know is I reacted, and I, I didn't holler. Just, you know, I, I wasn't a sympathetic screamer, but I, I did run and got out in the yard. I still didn't know why, but I was out in the yard. And I turned around, and Sarah's up there screaming. And so my dad coming out in the house, he grabs her and brings her out in the yard. So we're all out in the yard. And I still don't know why. 
Then my stepmother said, there's a snake. I was like, okay. And I go back up there. I'm the only one that's got a firearm on me. So I'm, I'm looking. I still don't see a snake. And then I look, coming down the side of the back porch and headed out toward the yard, snake about five feet long. So I go over there, boom, boom, snake's gone. Okay? Crisis averted. But here's what I didn't know. Uh, all that time we were sitting on the back porch, all that time we were sitting at the table eating lunch, that table, big round table, had a little lip up under the underside of it, and that snake was just sitting there, wrapped around that table, just laying there the whole time, knees up under the table, right, right there. Nobody knew the snake was there till all of a sudden, after two hours, I guess the snake got bored and decided to drop himself off of that little lip right onto my stepmother's feet. So she about had a... That's why she was screaming. That's why they were running because a snake all of a sudden dropped on their feet and gone. But, so, so the point of the story is not the fact that all that happened. Well, it kind of is, but the, the point is this. I reacted. I ran. I had no idea why. But I still did it. I still uh, ran away and joined the crowd even though I didn't have a clue what was going on. All I know is people were running and screaming, so I thought, okay, well, I'll run too. And I did. So I just kind of went along with the mob. Okay? So remember that. Remember what I just said. I didn't know what was going on, but I still went along with the crowd. And when we read the scripture, I suspect it will all become clear. So let's take a look at this passage in Acts 19, beginning in verse 21, going to verse 41, in a message entitled, Christ and Culture, When Two Worlds Collide. Here's what the Bible says as Luke writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. After he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, and by the way, you'll see the word Artemis, uh, the Latin of that word is Diana. So if you see Diana, it's just a translation of the same word. It's a, it's a Greek goddess, Artemis, okay? So just so you'll know as we go forward. Uh, so Demetrius made silver shrines of Artemis and was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. And so these he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. And when they heard this, and they were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with the confusion, 
And they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of him, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and here it is, and the majority did not know for what reason they'd come together. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward, and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all, as they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And after quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So, since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and to do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no real cause for it, and in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray today that this word of yours will be made clear to us, that your Holy Spirit will give us understanding, and that we would be able to be obedient to the truths we find in your word today, that you would be glorified above all else, and our lives will represent you well. Lord, help us today. Help us to understand and then to do what you say in Jesus' name. Amen. So this event sounds kind of uh, odd at first, and it's a little interesting why this whole story is, is included in the text, but I want you to see, first of all, there's three main sections here that all revolve around this conflict, but I want you to see one phrase as we look at our first point today, and that is gospel preaching often brings conflict. Gospel preaching often brings conflict. So when you look at the first paragraph here from verse 21 down to verse 27, there's a phrase at the beginning of verse 21 that kind of gives us a little cause to say, all right, what, what's, he, what's he talking about there? Because it says, now after these things were finished. Okay, so it makes you think, all right, what things? Well, if you recall last week, the first portion of chapter 19, a big, uh, a big event happened where Paul was preaching and God was doing all kind of miracles through Paul in, his, in the preaching of the gospel so that people were getting healed and evil spirits were being cast out and all this sort of thing, right? You remember that? And then uh, seven sons of one Jewish priest tried to get in on the action. And they tried to uh, call out the name of Jesus even though they knew nothing about Jesus. They did not have a relationship with Jesus. They tried to get it secondhand. They just wanted in on the action. They wanted in on the attention and the notoriety that Paul was garnering because of what God was doing. So the, the whole point of last week was that God was doing the work through Paul. 
So attention was being paid to what Paul was teaching, and it made these other folks jealous. So when they tried to get in on it, uh, the, remember this is when the evil spirit spoke to those seven and said, I know Jesus, and I've heard about Paul, but who are you? And that, that was the first sign that, okay, things were about to get really bad for those guys. And it did. And so that was the event when you read in verse 21, after these things were finished, that's what it's talking about. So on the heels of that major event in Paul's ministry, Paul decides he needs to go to Jerusalem. And it says in verse 21, he's going to pass through Macedonia, Achaia. He's going to go to Jerusalem, and then he's going to Rome. That's his goal, his long-term goal. He wants to go to Rome. So he plans this, um, this pathway here for where he's going. He, he's going to stay in Asia for a while, and he sends... There's two guys mentioned by name here uh, in verse 22, Timothy and Erastus, who had been serving with Paul and said they had ministered to him, and he sent them into Macedonia, and he stayed in Asia. So here's what we need to see. Church is a team sport. It's not a one-man show. Okay? We need, we need to just grasp that whole concept. If you're a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, and he loves you and you love him, and you trust Jesus for your salvation and forgiveness, that means you're on the team. And that means everybody has a function in the team. It's not, uh, Christianity is not uh, an event for paid professionals. That's not how it works. The body of Christ is a family that function, functions as a family and as a team. So when, when we work, we work together. When one rejoices, we rejoice together. When one is sad and is, is mourning, we mourn together. We're a family. We're a team. And so this is a demonstration of that because if you remember in the last parts of uh, this chapter and the, the previous chapter, uh, Paul's mission is a team effort. We've, we've already talked about Priscilla and Aquila who played a role in Corinth and in Ephesus here. We've talked about here uh, Gaius and Aristarchus who are going to be mentioned in this passage today. And then here you see Timothy and Erastus, two helpers of Paul that had... Uh, pastoral and practical responsibility. So it's kind of a, a sub-point within this bigger story that's happening just to remind us we're on a team. We're working together for a common goal. Okay. So when a conflict happens here, this conflict arose because of Paul's preaching and not so much what he was preaching but the effect of it. See, here's what happens. When you share the gospel consistently, constantly, things start to happen because of that. When people believe and their lives are affected by the truth, that changes things. Their speech starts to change. Their behavior starts to change. Their want-tos start to change. So they're not the same people they were. And that's the goal of Christianity. It's called sanctification. That today... Hopefully I am more like Jesus than I was yesterday. Tomorrow, hopefully I'm more like Jesus than I was today. That's the, it's a progressive plan. Okay? Being more like Jesus. So that affects people's lives, and that is what caused this problem. So you see a fellow named Demetrius. And uh, you see in verse 23, it's the, the kickoff of this conflict against the way. You remember what Jesus said, John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
So Christianity was often referred to as the way during, this, during these early days. So a man de named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis. Now, Artemis was a big deal in Ephesus, and so everybody in town is almost like this. Uh, you ever been to any place like Carowinds or Six Flags or Disney World or anything? You know, they've got a, a few gift shops in those places, right? And they sell a lot of souvenirs, right? And typically they are real proud of those souvenirs, you know? And so they make a lot of money off those things. All right, that's what's happening right here. Demetrius is raking it in pretty good because he's making these silver shrines for this goddess that is revered and respected and worshipped in Ephesus and even beyond. So he notices the change that is taking place in people's lives because of Paul preaching the truth of the gospel. Because here's the conflict. Christianity, idolatry, and they don't mix. So Paul's preaching has been causing people to turn away from worshiping idols and turn toward worshiping Jesus Christ as the Messiah, okay, the Savior of the world. So as that happens, what do you suppose is happening to old Demetrius' business? It's starting to go on a downward trend. So his, his income is starting to reduce a little bit, and he's like, okay, uh, that's not, I need some more, I need the money to keep rolling in, and so here's what he does. If you follow the text, it's real interesting the way he handles this whole situation. He takes uh, his idea, his principle of, I need this money to come in based on this business, and he gathers all the craftsmen and the workmen of similar trades. So, uh, Howard Marshall writes this. He said he appears, Demetrius, appears as a man with a nice sense of what would appeal to his fellow tradesmen. So he put before them as the very first consideration the fact that their trade, which was no doubt just as profitable as the modern production of souvenirs for tourists, was in danger of going into decline. So he's, he's a, kind of being a fear monger and he's trying to say, hey, uh, we need to put a stop to this because our money's going to dry up. So I want you to note a little detail here that's real important. His argument was not about doctrine. It was not about ethics. It was not about law-breaking. His argument was about money. That's all. So I want you to just remember that as we move through and see how this thing progresses because... His whole uh, argument was economic. It was not based on any kind of principled truth that he had a problem with. So he got these folks together. The Bible says, verse 25, he gathered them together. And then he says, hey, you know our prosperity depends on this business. So he reminds them all, hey, your paycheck is at stake here. So it would be in your best interest to be on my side of this argument because, hey, the money's been good, right? I've given y'all some of this business and you've enjoyed the money. So he reminds them that the paycheck is at stake. He argues that Paul was persuading people to forsake idolatry in favor of Christianity. And then he scared them into thinking their whole business was going to fall into disrepute, what the Bible says, which means it's going to have a bad reputation. 
Okay, those who make the idols. So he's scaring them into also thinking that the whole reputation of the goddess Artemis is going to be uh, at stake here, that, that she's going to be regarded as worthless and be dethroned from her magnificence. So the, the gospel preaching that Paul has been doing for nearly three years in this area has resulted in this conflict. Now, this is not the first conflict, but this particular one is because, directly because, people are getting saved and their, their lives are changing, which is a positive, right? And that what, that's what's supposed to happen, right? When the gospel gets preached, people get saved and trust Jesus, things are supposed to change. That, that's another little point we need to remember, a little self-reflection, a little self-application. Is my life changing? Have I believed in Jesus? And if I have... Am I different now than I was before? You want to know? You don't even have to do a self-reflection. You want to know how you're doing? You want to know if your life is bearing fruit after having been changed by Christ? You got any friends that will tell you the truth even if it hurts your feelings? Go ask them. Ask them. Hey, do you notice anything different about me in the last five years, ten years? Is my life, does it look different? Do I act any different than I used to? You might, I mean, you might be scared of what they might tell you. I mean, I, I don't know if I really want to be asking those questions because I don't know if I'm prepared to get the answer. But that is a good, uh, good way to judge the difference Jesus is making in your life. So gospel preaching often brings conflict. Number two, gospel conflicts often reveal sinfulness. If you look at verse 28, how this develops, you've seen the beginning of the conflict. Now what course does it take? Verse 28, it says, When all these people that Demetrius had gathered together, they heard, uh, they heard what he said. They were filled with rage. So he was successful, right? He stirred them up. He stirred up a mob of angry workmen, filled with rage, chanting this mantra of nonsense, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, I, it says later they did it for two hours straight. I just can't, I mean, I just don't understand. Anyway, that's what they were doing. They were so enthralled in the argument and so uh, afraid that their source of income was going to go away and that uh, the reputation of their business and the reputation of their goddess was going to be uh, defamed. So... They're filled with rage. The city was filled with the same confusion. They rushed together into the theater, it says, and they dragged a couple guys with them. So they noticed, they couldn't find Paul, apparently, but they noticed that a couple of guys who had been with Paul, Gaius and Aristarchus, from Macedonia, well, they grabbed them up, took them into... Because you know what? Every time there's an angry mob, there's got to be a focus point for the anger. They've got to direct it towards someone else because if you're... I'm just going to say this and take it for what it's worth. If you're going to play the victim, somebody's got to be blamed for it. Right? And that's exactly what's happening. So they grabbed these two guys because they were associated with Paul. Now, let me tell you real quickly about uh, this area where they were. I want you to get a mental picture. John Stott, who is a fabulous, fabulous uh, theologian, he's gone to be with the Lord now, but he, he wrote a a great um, description of this in the, his commentary, The Message of Acts. He's talking about the part of the city 
where this most likely took place because there are still plenty of uh, ruins of this area still available to see that have been preserved. So he says that this was most likely what they called the Arcadian Way, which is the main thoroughfare in Ephesus, like the main street. And it was about 36 feet wide, marble paved, colonnades everywhere, and it led from the harbor to the theater. And now the theater itself, which is actually still preserved today, the theater itself was nestled at the foot of Mount Pion. It was nearly 500 feet in diameter, and it was estimated that this theater could accommodate up to 25,000 people. So I want you to just understand, this was not three or four guys that were ticked off and decided to start a fight. This was a tremendous mob of angry people. Okay? And that's where they went, to the theater. So there were thousands, most likely thousands of people who were all directing their anger and discontent toward these two associates of Paul and at the gospel in particular. Okay? So that's the kind of picture we see. It was a mob of people. And I know there's probably nothing that you can think of that's been on the news in the last year that you could relate that to, seeing mobs of people, riots, and all angry people don't know why. All right, so you know, just think about that. All right, so that's what's going on in Ephesus. Now, Paul wasn't scared. Because Paul found out that his two boys had gotten dragged into the center and he wants to go in there. It says that Paul wants to go into the theater and make his own argument and defend himself, but the disciples wouldn't let him. It says also there were some social, uh, some religious political leaders in that region that were friends of Paul who also sent letters to him and urged him, hey, don't go in there. Don't go in there. It, uh, bad things will happen, so don't go in there. So people in the angry mob were just shouting various nonsense. I know there's nothing you can think of that might relate to that. You've not seen any news reports. Just shouting angry nonsense. Y'all all right? Everybody okay? Okay. Have you looked at the news in the last year? Just want, just curious. All right, so here's the thing. The assembly was in confusion. The Bible says some people shouting this, some people shouting that. And then it says, the all-important phrase, verse 32, the majority didn't even know why they were there. Remember me and the snake and the hollering and screaming and running? I had no idea. I just thought, okay, they're running. I'm going to run too. And I did. So it says here, that the majority of the people had no idea why they, why they were even there. So David Peterson, who wrote some, some stuff about this passage, said he said these proceedings could hardly be taken seriously. Most of the people didn't even know why they had gathered. And then uh, Howard Marshall makes this comment. He said that the meeting was disorganized. It showed none of the orderly procedure of a typical Greek democratic city, which is what Ephesus was. And then he says that Luke was sarcastic saying that many of the people didn't even know why they were there. And mobs today often show the same disorder and confusion, right? Just a mob of people. Everybody's mad. Half of them don't even know why they're there. They don't even know what they're fighting against. you got the two people and one guy stops hollering for a minute and he turns to his neighbor and says, Hey, um... What are we fighting about? I don't know. Okay, and they keep hollering. But they just, they, neither of them know why they're there, but they're just mad about it. And that's what's going on here. It's confusion. 
It's complete confusion. And he goes on to say this. If this seems incredible, and, and literally speaking, like incredible, not believable, not credible. If this seems incredible, we might remember how long angry crowds today can shout abuse when someone tries to engage in a rational argument. You know, I learned a long time ago that if someone is willing to sit down with me and have a civil conversation, I will talk about anything, anytime, to anyone. If you're willing to sit down and we can have a, an adult civil conversation, not raise our voices, and just dis uh, discuss principled facts that are in debate. If, if we want to have a discussion like that, I am more than happy to engage in that at any time with anyone for any reason over any subject. However, I've also noticed that when someone's argument tends to lack substance, here's what happens. The emotion increases, the volume increases, the anger increases. You know why? Because then it's reverted to, well, the loudest person's going to win. doesn't matter what they're saying. So if I have truth on my side, as Paul certainly did, I have no need to raise my voice. I have no need to get angry. I will just speak the truth, and the truth will stand on its own. However, if my opponent in the debate does not have truth on their side then their tactic is going to be get louder, get angry, maybe say something about my mama, you know, something like that. Personal attack, because there's no substance to the argument. Does that make sense? That's how today, in our culture, that seems to be the default reaction. Oh, I have no truth to stand on, so I'm just going to scream really loud, and then the civil people will back off. Does that ring a bell at all? That's what's happening in the world. So you can, you can be assured that the tip... Now I'm sure there's an exception. Sometimes people have the truth, but they're just really, really passionate about it, and they get loud. Okay, I get it. I've been known to do that from time to time. But the point is, typically, the louder and more emotional someone gets, it's because they lack substance to their argument. And that is what has happened here and why Alexander, who is, who is uh, put forward to make an argument, you see this in the text right here. Uh, this is, uh, let's see, verse 33. Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly, but look at verse 34. When they recognized he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all, and they shouted him down for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Hey, if we say it really, really loud... It doesn't matter if it's not true. We'll just yell it over and over, and then people will get disenchanted and go away. That's the tactic. So you see what has happened here. Shouting abuse when someone is trying to engage in a rational argument. So the sinfulness of the, of the mob is revealed because of the gospel. Okay? Finally, number three. Gospel conflicts often reveal heresy. Heresy is just a fancy word for false teaching. Okay, so I want you to look. When the, when the city clerk, who has some leadership position here in this assembly, he gets involved in the, in the conversation. He has to quiet the crowds down so he can speak to them. 
So you see in verse 35, after quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, now listen to what, what he lays out here for these folks. He says, everybody knows that Ephesus is the guardian of the temple for this goddess, the great Artemis. And then he says, Artemis is a goddess whose image fell down from heaven, allegedly. Then he says they believed that these were indisputable truths. Now that is the false teaching. That's the heresy. So here's the difference. I want you to see this fine distinction here. It's a very fine line. They believed that these truths were undeniable. The truth that they claim is not undeniable. The fact they believe it is undeniable. Does that make sense? So... You can't deny that all these people believe this nonsense. But the facts themselves are not facts at all. They're, uh, they're heresy. They're idolatry. Okay? They're worshiping some mythological goddess. Okay? So that's what's going on. So the only indisputable truth here is that people actually believe this craziness. All right? So relate that to our culture. Many people believe many things. That could be pretty easily and readily disproven. But that doesn't change the fact they are very, very opinionated and dogmatic that this is the truth. It doesn't matter that it's not. I can go out on a street corner underneath the sign in Wagner and I can scream for 10 hours a day, 2 plus 2 is 17! And I can be very passionate about it. And I can scream it at the top of my lungs doesn't make it true. We'll never make it true. Just because I'm convinced in my own demented mind and just because I'm really loud and passionate about it doesn't change the fact that it's false. Does that make sense? People believe all kinds of stuff that's not true. Right? Just because they are passionate about their belief doesn't make them right. You know, everybody okay? I'm getting a little heavy here. Just want to make sure. So the clerk says... Everybody knows these things. He asserts these claims about the city, and they say that they uh, are undeniable. Of course, I'm sure if Paul was there, he would definitely have challenged all of that if he'd been given the opportunity. So the clerk says you need to calm down, not do anything rash. So he's saying there was, you know, nothing should disturb the confidence of the city about their little goddess. So he urged them to stay calm. He says the, the men, talks about the two they drug in there, he says they've not been uh, not committed any sacrilege talking about robbing temples he said they've no, committed no blasphemy against the precious goddess and they hadn't they hadn't said anything about specifically about that they just preached the gospel plain and simple they just preached the gospel so his advice was if Demetrius and the others have a problem they should go through the proper legal channels handle it in a court of law like civilized people now what do you suppose would happen today if someone were to get a little megaphone and go out into some of these angry mobs that are gathered all over the, the country and say, hey, you need to calm down, okay? If you have a problem, you need to handle it like civilized people and file a complaint in a court of law and go through the proper channels. How do you think that would be met? Poorly, right? Poorly, okay? Probably wouldn't be received at all. But that's what the clerk says to them. Now, 
the interesting thing is this town clerk is not an advocate for Christianity. He's not defending the gospel. What he's defending is law and order and justice. And so he's anxious that the city does not get a bad reputation for being disorderly and having these types of activities in the city. Do you see that? So, so his point is not to uh, defend Paul or his teaching. His point is, I want the city to be seen as a civil, just, and well-behaved society. Not exactly what we observe on the news today. Because apparently those things don't really matter when many times it appears that those who are in leadership in some of these places are the ones potentially encouraging the bad behavior. And that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate. Because that's not how things were designed to work. But that's another conversation. So the clerk was afraid of bringing legal trouble to the Ephesian people. They didn't want to be accused of causing a riot. But I want you to see the fact that the clerk understands there's no reason for them to be there in that angry mob. Look what the text says to us. It says that in verse 39 and verse 40, the end of our text, it says, if you want anything beyond this, it should be settled in the lawful assembly. Indeed, we're in danger of being accused of a riot. And then he says, there's no cause. There's no cause for it. So even the leadership of the town acknowledges this is nonsense. If you've got a problem with them, file a charge, take it to the court. If not, you just need to go home. That, that's what he said, which is actually great leadership. You know, for whatever he believes, that's great leadership. So he says they'll be unable to give an account for this disorderly gathering. So the town clerk dismisses the people. Now here's how this thing ends up. So let's, let's conclude this, this passage today. There's a couple of things I want to point out to you that have been given to us from a few different sources, a few different commentators. David Peterson writes that rioting in support of your religion was provocative and potentially self-destructive. Let's uh, apply it to Christianity. If we were to be so passionate about the gospel that we went through towns in an angry mob screaming and yelling at people, how well do you think the gospel truth would be received? Jesus said, by this the world will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. We're supposed to love people to Jesus. We're not supposed to scare the hell out of them, literally speaking. We're supposed to be kind in the face of adversity. We're supposed to love in the face of hate. We're supposed to display an uncommon, unusual personality that causes people to question, what do you have that I don't? That's what a Christian is supposed to do as we speak and articulate the gospel truth. We're supposed to love, not riot. Howard Marshall says that Christians do not constitute a danger to the state and they should be treated with toleration even in a pluralistic society. If we're not breaking the law, if we're not damaging someone's property or hurting someone's uh, self-body, then we should be treated with just as much tolerance as every other person in the world. Just because you believe 
in Jesus should not make you a target for abuse and persecution. And unfortunately, that's not necessarily the case. John Stott adds that Rome, clearly in this passage, Rome had no case against Christianity in general or Paul in particular. The opposition was purely emotional. Make sense? Look around us. The opposition is typically emotional. It's not based on any fact. It's emotional. Let me close with this. This chapter shows the potential of the gospel to transform the life and culture of a city. That's really what we're talking about. You want to know how much power is in the Word of God? It can transform a culture. It can transform a city. It can transform your life. And so that's what causes the problem. Paul's three-year ministry of teaching the Word in Ephesus touched people at every level of society. And it began to transform the religious practices and the lifestyles of many people. And so Luke shows the need to be realistic about the opposition that's going to come up when the practical effect of such change is experienced by unbelievers. When people's lives begin to change because of Jesus, it's going to upset the apple cart. It's not, things are not going to be able to continue in the same way. Because lives are changing. Therefore, behavior, beliefs, words are changing. And sometimes people don't know how to process that. So there's real opposition. The self-interest of religious and social and economic groups might be so intense that the lives of Christians could be threatened. And, and we should know spiritual opposition could show itself in a variety of ways. But we need to remember this. The name of Jesus is powerful to overcome even demonic forces and to allow the gospel to prevail, just as it did right here in Ephesus. Long story short, Jesus is stronger than our opposition. Jesus is stronger than our problems. Nothing is too difficult for our God. And when we go into spiritual battle every single day, we cannot go into battle unprepared, or without the knowledge that our general, our commander, has won. We don't have anything to ultimately fear from our adversaries. Because no one can stand against our Lord. We can't forget that. There's going to be conflicts all the time. And our physical lives could be threatened. But we, we can't allow those things to deter us from going forward with the gospel because we know that the captain of the armies of heaven has got it under control. We, we, how can we forget that so easily? How can we walk through our lives every day and not remember how powerful Jesus is? And, and if you doubt that, if you have any reservations at all, just remember this. What kind of junk did Jesus have to deal with to save your soul? Do you think anything else we face in life is going to be too much for Him? He's already conquered death 
and hell and the grave. He's already victorious. And it's time that we start living in that and not backing up. The Bible says on the confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Jesus will build His church. The confession that Peter made, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God. And Jesus said, on that confession, on that truth, I will build my church and the gates of hell, you know what I'm saying? Will not prevail. Is a gate an offensive or defensive weapon? Why do we not get this? A gate is a defensive mechanism. You know what that means? Please hear this. That passage, the gates of hell will not prevail. That means Christians are on the advance. The devil is on the defense. And his gates will not stop the gospel. Let's go. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org. 